text I'm going to open with tonight is John chapter, or Luke chapter 24, a very familiar text on the road to Emmaus. This is Jesus talking to a couple of disciples on that road. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, that's what we ask right now, that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures, that how all of scripture from Moses and the prophets and the Psalms points to you. I pray you would show me what I should land on and what I should let go of, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts um, to hear, minds that will understand this. And I pray, Lord, that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. Pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. If y'all would, open your Bibles to your table of contents. Now, tonight's going to be a much different, much, much different service than we normally have at Redeemer. Um, and this is based on a number of conversations I've been having that I know a number of you here are new believers. Um, some of you um, are still open to the Christian faith but have not committed. And a lot of you have questions about the Bible, just the overall flow of the Bible. What is it? You know, the whole structure of it. Uh, I've talked to some of you who've tried to read through it and you just get hopelessly lost. And so tonight I'm going to just kind of do a sweep through the entire Bible, kind of show you the structure of it, where things are pointing, where things land. So hopefully after this you have a key um, to understanding Scripture. And so we're going to look at, first of all, your table of contents. Um, and I've seen some of you sneak peeks, you know, whenever I mention a text before, you sneak peeks at your table of contents, and then you try to flip there real quickly. You don't have to be embarrassed because probably most of us here do not know the Bible in order, all the books. Um, you have two major divisions. You have the Old Testament and you have the New Testament. Um, Testament's a fancy word for covenant. So you have an Old Covenant and you have a New Covenant, and that's the major break of it. You have... Um, In the Old Testament, 39 books there. These 39 books span about 2,000 years, and they are written by 29 different authors. Um, And so it can be just a little confusing when you do start going through this. The, The content is enormous. And if you just try to pick up your Old Testament and read through it, you're going to get lost if you're expecting this unbroken story. Like it's all in chronological order and it all tells a story because it doesn't. And so look at your Old Testament here and from Genesis to Nehemiah, these 17 books there are historical. That's the order of it. So you have Genesis to Nehemiah is the history of Israel. And that will be in chronological order there. Um, Your next, or sorry, through Esther. You have Genesis through Esther. Your next five books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, are your poetical books. So you have your first 17 are, class, historical. Your next five are poetical. And then you have your next 17 books are prophetical. So it goes 17, 5, 17. And so from Isaiah all the way to Malachi are the prophets. Now, The first five prophets are the major prophets. The next 12 prophets are the minor prophets. And the reason it's broken up this way isn't because, you know, Isaiah is somehow better than Zephaniah. And, you know, he's major, Zephaniah's minor. It simply is length. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations together, Ezekiel, Daniel, are longer than all the other prophets. So they're considered major prophets. And while the rest are much shorter, so they are the minor prophets. And so that's the the breakdown of the Old Testament. So if you want to go to a story in the Old Testament, you're going to have to go to the first 17 books. That's the history. If you want to go to wisdom literature or a poem or the the Psalms, you're going to go to the next five. If you want to go to prophecy, you're going to go to the next 17 right there. And that is your division. 
Then you go to the New Testament, and it's broken up somewhat similarly, in that your first five books are historical. And you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts. And that is the, the entire history of Jesus and the church that we have in the Bible right there. After this, you have 13 Pauline epistles or letters. Um, 13 letters, all grouped by Paul there. You could break those up even more if you want to. The first nine of Paul's letters that are there from Romans to 2 Thessalonians are all letters to churches. The next four letters, 1 Timothy to Philemon, are all to people. So it's a very natural progression. These are not in order that he, he wrote them, not at all. Um, 1 Thessalonians would have been the first if it was in order that he wrote them. These are all by order of length. Romans is your longest letter. 1 Corinthians is your second longest letter. And it goes all the way down into where you get to, uh, you know, little Thessalonians. And it's the same with the, uh, um, the letters to people in which Philemon is just a little teeny, teeny book. And so in the New Testament, your first five books are what? Historical. Your next 13 books are Paul's letters. And the first nine are letters to? And the next four are letters to? Very good. And then you have your final nine, beginning in Hebrews to Revelation. These are what you would call general letters. And that means that Paul didn't write these. You have... Peter wrote some. You have John wrote some. We're not sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. And and so you have your Pauline first. Then you have your non-Pauline or your general letters. And uh, those, once again, are in order of length. Hebrews is your longest going all the way down except for Revelation. Revelation is really long, but you had to put Revelation at the end. You you, you couldn't put it in the middle of the New Testament. Revelation deserved to be at the end. Um, So that's the, the order of all the contents in the Bible. So real quick, we're going to run through it again. You have uh, the first 17 books of the Old Testament are? Your next five books are? Your next 17 books are? In which the first, tw- first five are the? The next 12 are the? All right, then we go to the New Testament. I am taking notes on each one who is not saying anything. I'm going to come talk to you afterwards. You get to the New Testament and you have your first five books are? Very good. Then you have your next 13 letters are Pauline epistles or letters in which the first nine are two. The next four are two. Very good. And then you have nine final that are general letters. There you go. So that's the structure of the entire Bible. Now let's begin looking at the content. And I'm going to try to work through as much as I can. I'm going to go somewhat slow through the first chapters of Genesis And we're just going to keep picking up steam to where we're going to start flying at the end, okay? But you really got to understand the first few chapters of Genesis if you want to understand the rest of the Bible. And so in Genesis chapter 1, you see Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, you see that God created everything. There's nothing that he did not create. And he, he created it through his spoken word. And so God said, light Boom, there was light. He said, cattle, boom, there's cattle. You know, he just spoke and it came into being. And uh, except for when it came to man, in which he actually got his hands dirty, and it said he fashioned man with the dust from the ground. Now, the God that we see here in Scripture is different than most major religions and philosophies concerning how God deals with matter or the world. Uh, Most major religions and philosophies have God very distant from the physical. God is only concerned with the spiritual. He's only concerned with your spirit or your soul. But we see in Genesis 1 and 2 that God cares about your spirit. He cares about your body. He's not scared to touch the matter. He says it's good. And he's concerned with the world itself. And this is huge in Scripture because a lot of other religions say that Everything is to be done away with and only your spirit matters. But the Bible, we believe our God says, no, your spirit and your body and this world matter. They're good. They're all good. Well, man of all of creation, creation was, was made in seven days. Man is the pinnacle of this. Man alone was um, called um, that he was created in God's image. 
And so we see man is the pinnacle of all creation, but not the goal. And a lot of people miss this. The goal of creation is actually rest. Rest. It's, it's what happens on the seventh day. Um, and you see this. Turn, turn to Genesis chapter 2, which is different than the other days of creation. And all the other days of creation, um, you have, uh, and there was morning, and, or there was evening, and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning, you know, the second day. You, you have this. But you don't have this when it comes to creation of, or on the Sabbath. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And you don't hear after that, and there was evening and there was morning the next day. Because the author is trying to say that this rest is ongoing. And that doesn't mean that God's not working, that God isn't sustaining everything by the word of his power. If, if God wasn't sustaining everything, the whole world would fall apart. By rest, it means he's finished. There, there's nothing he has to add to it. He looks at Adam and Eve in the garden, and you know, he's walking with them in the cool of the evening, and he says, perfect. This is, this is how it should be. I don't need to add anything. I, I can rest. This is shalom here. This is peace. And then we're going to see that this rest gets shattered if we go to the first um, slide, I'm going to break down the, the Old Testament into, uh, you go ahead and go to the next one, into nine different categories. And the first is going to be creation, what we're looking at right now. I hate PowerPoint, by the way. Hate it. Um, but it's either that or use a marker board, and I'm just going to use nine slides. That's it. Um, so we have creation, which is Genesis 1 through 11. Um, well, you go to Genesis 3, and you're going to see this rest broken. It's broken because the woman falls and she brings Adam with him, with her. Um, they both fall. It's Adam's fault primarily. Um, but you know, they're in the garden. God gives them one instruction. You're not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So one instruction that they have in paradise. But they take it and it ruins everything. The rest of the Bible is going to try to fix, or will fix, what, what's broken here. Um, and so they, they broke God's law, um, but that's not the primary sin here, is that they, they disobeyed God's law. The, the primary sin is that they decided to make their own law. That they are now deciding what's right or wrong by eating the, the, from the tree of knowledge of good or evil. They heard what God said, this is right and wrong. They said, no, we make the laws. And so we say this is okay. And so they take this. And the result is a curse. They are thrown out of the garden and all of creation is cursed. All of creation falls in a sense with Adam and Eve. And so things look pretty hopeless at this point. Rest is destroyed. Shalom is destroyed. And then you get to Genesis 3.15, if you'll look there, and you get your first hint of hope. And this is God talking to the serpent. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The fancy word for this is the proto-evangel, meaning the first gospel. Theologians like saying things in Latin because it makes them feel really important. Um, But it's the proto-evangel, the first gospel. And it's the first hint of it. It, it, It's not full-fledged here. It's it's not really fleshed out, and I am going to use this, and you're all going to laugh at me. Um, But what you have here is... Um, this is going to be so bad. Anybody know what that is? Acorn. Acorn. It wasn't that bad. All right. 
What you see here is an acorn, in which it's, it's, not, it's not the full gospel. It's a hint at it. And, and the hint is, okay, Eve, you've fallen. But you know what? Your seed, your seed is going to, it's going to battle the serpent's seed. And, and someday the serpent's going to bite one of your descendants on the heel, but he's going to turn around and crush its head, give it a death blow. And so it's just a hint of the gospel. And what you're going to see throughout Scripture is this growing, 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 and growing. And so finally you get, that's a tree, I'm not going to ask you. Uh, and so you get a tree, which is the cross. This gospel is going to grow throughout all of the Old Testament until finally when you, when you get to the cross, you can look back at this and you can understand it. And you're going to see this throughout the whole Old Testament. A lot of it doesn't make any sense unless you understand what it's growing to be. Unless you understand it's the tree. Um, and there's a fancy word for this. I'm just going to abbreviate it. O-P-R. Which is Organic Progressive Revelation. Organic, just throw that out next dinner discussion. Organic Progressive Revelation. And all that means is God doesn't reveal everything at the very beginning. He doesn't. He lets it grow through each page of Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, this revelation. He keeps revealing Himself more and more and more and more until you have people like Moses who gets to see some of God. So you get Isaiah who's saying the virgin shall be with child and and the government's going to rest on his shoulders until finally you get to the cross and it all clicks. The final revelation in Jesus. You could think of the Old Testament as a love story. This, um, I mean, you, you can accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior without knowing any of the Old Testament. You can. Um, but you won't really, really, really know him like you could. It, it, the Old Testament's the marriage proposal. It's the, it's the bringing flowers. It's the, it's the, the courting. The gradually getting to, to know one another there. Until finally when the proposal comes, you're like, yes, I see it. I see it. And, and, and Jesus here. Um, so that's your first hint of the gospel. Um, and then when God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, you get to see kind of a little aspect of this as well when God clothes them. He, uh, he clothes them with animal skins. He takes away their fig leaves and he's like, no, no, fig leaves will not cover shame. There needs to be death. And so God kills an animal and dresses them. Said it's going to take blood to cover your shame. And so you you see even the hint there of of a sacrificial system to come. Well, the moment this vertical relationship with God is damaged, the horizontals damaged, you have in Genesis 4, you have um, Cain killing Abel. You have mankind getting so bad that in Genesis 6 through 9, God just wipes out the earth with a flood. And it just looks like things cannot get any worse. The pinnacle is the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, in which they disobey God's first command, which is to go and to fill the earth. And they say, no, we will not fill the earth. Instead, we're going to get together and we're going to make a name for ourselves instead of a name for God. And so God, he disperses that, puts an end to that project. And then he decides to start with one man, Abraham, Genesis 12, in which we come to the next section of Scripture, which is the patriarchs. And when we finish Luke, um, you know, we're on week 40-something in Luke. When we finish Luke, our next series is going to be the patriarchs for about 15 or 20 weeks, and then we'll go to Acts. But the patriarchs, in which you have um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph fill up the rest of Genesis. But Genesis 12 is probably the biggest verses in the Old Testament. Genesis 12, the first three verses. And let me read those. In which God picks Abraham, not because he's righteous. Um, He just picks Abraham because he wants to. And he says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. 
and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now pretty much you could say the rest of the Old Testament is nothing but a commentary or an exposition of these three verses being fleshed out. In which he had after Adam, you know, was kicked out of the garden, there was curse, curse. And then God, he picks Abraham and the language is bless, bless, bless. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a blessing. And so we have that, that godly seed now is going to go through the line of Abraham. That God is going to somehow bring rest and blessing back to the world, restore it through Abraham. And you've got a number of promises there. One, he's going to have to have a lot of land if he's going to be a nation. He's going to have to have a lot of descendants if he's going to be a nation. Um, He's going to be famous. And he's going to bless all the families of the world his seed is. Going to bless everyone. And so, you see this starting to grow throughout the rest of Genesis. Abraham falls repeatedly. A lot of people, they put the patriarchs on a pedestal. And they're like, wow, these are the heroes of the faith. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they, they did have a lot of faith at times. But you see things like Abraham lying to a king saying, oh, uh, Sarah, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And right after he does that, God responds by blessing him, not judging him. He sins and God blesses him. Isaac, his son, does the same thing. Actually, he lies to the exact same king. Um, and he says, oh, no, Rebecca is not my wife. She's my sister. And God responds by blessing Isaac. And then Isaac has Jacob. Jacob lies pretty much from the moment he is born. He is a liar and he is a deceiver. And God just blesses him and blesses him. And, and what you're seeing is God revealing himself, this organic progressive revelation. He's going overboard to show I am a gracious God. I am a good God. I am for you. And over and over you see these people blow it and God actually keeps blessing them and blessing them, saying, I am for you. Well, the big thing you need to know about the rest of the patriarchs is Jacob has 12 sons. You know, Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, all 12 of these sons, eventually they make their way to Egypt because there is a famine. Um, and Genesis 50, the last verse, the last words are a coffin in Egypt. These are the last words. It's, it's pretty, uh, pretty dark words, foreshadowing of what is to come in Egypt. Um, and so we come to Egypt, and God partially fulfills this promise to Abraham. They start growing. His seed starts growing. They become very numerous in number over about 400 years. And it's where there's probably close to 2 million of them at this point. So they're huge. But they're in Egypt. Pharaoh doesn't like this. And so, you know, we looked at this all last year, the story of of Moses. So he puts the Israelites, these Hebrews, he makes them... He makes them uh, do heavy labor. Um, They're slaves. And then he he kills the first or the uh, all the male children, doing anything to try to squash them down. And so it looks like this promise to Abraham isn't going to work. How can they bless the nations when they are a slave to a nation? So God sends one of the dominant figures of the Old Testament. Moses. Um, Moses comes on the scene. God appears to him in Exodus chapter 3, raises him up to be a deliverer of all of Israel. And that's where you get your famous stories like uh, the burning bush where God reveals himself to Moses as Yahweh or I am. That's where you get uh, the parting of the Red Sea in Exodus 14. Um, You had all the ten plagues leading up to that parting of the Red Sea. Um, The final plague probably being the most significant in which Moses went to Pharaoh and he said, Pharaoh, if you do not let uh, my people go, God's going to kill the firstborn of all of Egypt. 
And God does. And the only reason that he spares the Hebrews is because they put the blood of a lamb on their doorpost. The blood of a lamb. Obviously, you know, we see that from the tree perspective back to this acorn and we see Christ. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see that clearly. He is our Passover lamb. Well, the people of God are delivered. Uh, they, that's the exodus. The two million people leave and they're going off to the promised land. Um, and that takes up exodus. Um, oh, sorry, we go. That takes up exodus through Deuteronomy. Um, Deuteronomy is a little bit interesting in which uh, you have the Ten Commandments there as well. Um, the Ten Commandments are found in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy. And the reason is Deuteronomy is to that next generation of Hebrews. The first generation died off. And so Deuteronomy is to that next generation, reminding them of their faith. Reminding them of why do they have this tabernacle. What, what is this tabernacle all about? Um, which is one of the dominant themes of Exodus. Um, when, when Moses delivers the people and they're moving towards the promised land, they land at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Exodus 20, he gives them the Ten Commandments. And then you have these detailed instructions about how to build this tabernacle. It's, it's just, I mean, the minutia of just, it fills up the rest of Exodus. But it's a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. It's the restoring of rest at this point. Because God's saying, hey, you know what? Now that I've delivered you, I'm going to come and be present with you again. Kind of like, you know, when we were in the garden. I'm going to come in my presence. I'm going to restore some of that rest. And so you're going to build a special tabernacle. You're going to build this special seat called the Ark of the Covenant. And you're going to surround it with thick curtains. But my glory, my presence will come in there. Which is great news. You have, you have kind of the Garden of Eden and a little bit being restored. But the problem now is that these are very sinful people and now you have a very holy God coming in their midst. And so this is where the sacrificial system comes into play. They're like, well, I mean, if a holy God's going to come, He's just going to destroy us unless we make sacrifices atoning for our sin. And so this is when the sacrificial system is fleshed out in Exodus. All of this pointing to Jesus. You know, uh, John chapter 1 goes into a lot of Exodus and a lot of Genesis. But John chapter 1 starts with, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, all things that came into being, uh, nothing has come into being apart from Him. And what John is saying is that spoken Word that we looked at in Genesis was Jesus. That spoken word was Jesus creating. And then we have, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word for dwelt is tabernacled. Just as God's presence came and tabernacled among the Israelites, now Jesus comes and tabernacles with us. And then later, you know, the very first thing that Jesus is called is, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, now he's, he's the presence of God in our midst, and he's also the Lamb of God who's going to take away our sin. All the scripture starts pointing towards Jesus. You start seeing the cross growing. Well, let's go to the next heading here, which is going to be Conquest. God takes his people to the edge of this promised land that was promised to Abraham. And, uh, and says, go and take it. And after being disobedient and having to wander for 40 years, then they go and they take it. Joshua's the main figure here. This is where you get the, uh, the song Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. Um, next heading. Then you come to a period of Judges, um, which is in the book of Judges and Ruth. And so now you have this two million people They've just gone into the promised land. They're not a kingdom. They're not like the United States at this point. What they are is a loose confederation. Think of them as that. They're 12 loose tribes kind of interconnected. Um, so they don't have a king. What they have is a judge who comes. You have judges like Gideon, judges like Deborah, judges like Samson. That's what, this is the book that they are all in. 
And what you have is a cycle that happens over and over in Judges. They're in the promised land. You would think, okay, Abraham's blessing is being fulfilled. Now we've got land. Now we can really be a light into the world. We've got the law, you know, which tells us to be generous to the sojourner, which tells us to be extremely generous with our money. We can, we can be a light into the world, but they don't. They commit idolatry. And so what God does is he sends in a foreign nation, kind of destroys them a little bit. And so they cry out to God for help. We're so sorry. God sends a judge like, we'll say, Deborah or Gideon. Gideon delivers them. They repent. And everything's fine for the life of that judge. The judge dies. The people fall into sin. God sends in a a neighboring nation to come in and fight them and destroy them. They cry out to God, help us, help us. We're sorry. We repent. God raises up a judge, delivers them. Everything's great and fine. The judge dies. (laughs) Then the people fall into sin again. This cycle happens seven times in Judges. Seven times. And you can actually say it's a spiral because every cycle gets worse and worse and worse. And so when you finally get to the end of Judges, and it is uh, the most graphic, horrific chapters in the Bible. It is uh, sexually explicit. It's uh, the, the murders that are there, the, uh, the, just the evil coming out and, and the depravity of man's hearts. You look at it, and it's the reason that um, a lot of schools tried to ban the Bible from their li- libraries. They would point to the end of Judges and say, how in the world can you have that? Um, how can children be reading this? Um, now, in contrast to the judges, you have one good person, Ruth. She lived an amazing godly life. And the point of Ruth is to show not everybody was like the judges here, but there was Ruth, and uh, she's the great-grandmother of David. And the last word of Ruth is David, which is the point of it all, pointing to the next Um, next category we have, which is the kingdom. So after 400 years of being a loose confederacy and having these judges, they finally get a king. Finally get a king. Um, And they have three kings that hold a united kingdom. They have Saul, David, and Solomon that reigned for 120 years. Now David is probably the most central figure in the Old Testament. Um, Just to put it in perspective, uh, in my Bible, there's 153 pages dedicated to King David. There's only 120 pages in the Gospels, all four of them. And so the biography that we have of King David is greater than the biography we have of Jesus. Matter of fact, it is the largest biography in existence of any ancient historical figure. Um, secular or religious. Um, One of the things that's kind of amazing about that is, I mean, you know, King David just dominates all of this. And yet, until 1993, there was not a single evidence outside of Scripture that King David existed. And uh, a lot of people wrote that he was just a myth, that he really didn't exist. Until finally they found some extra-biblical writings in 1993 that said, no, there is a King David. And then in this millennium, um, right in 2000, they found his palace. And so finally, there, the archaeological evidence of King David is starting to come up. Um, but David absolutely dominates the scene. And uh, he's going to fill up First and Second Samuel here um, and First Kings. And uh, one of the things, and also First Chronicles, one of the things I love about David is that you get to see him warts and all in Scripture. You get to see his highs and you get to see his lows. But the most significant part of David's life actually comes in 2 Samuel 7, if you want to turn there. 2 Samuel 7. God has established David as king. 
when he's king, he's established rest. Um, uh, we'll read in verse 11 of chapter 7. We'll start with the, uh, and I will. And I will give you rest, once again, establishing that rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, the reason that the Lord says this is because David had this great idea. I said, hey, God, you know, you're dwelling in this tent, this tabernacle. You know what? I'm going to make you a house. And God responds by saying, no, you're not going to make me a house. I'm going to make you a house. I don't need your help, David, (laughs) but I'm going to establish something for you. And, And go to verse 16. It says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Forever. Now this acorn is just really, really starting to grow at this point. In which God looks at King David and says, "Uh, uh, uh-uh, you're not going to do anything for me. I work by grace. And you're fallen and you're sinful and you're all those things, but I'm going to establish rest. I'm going to establish shalom. And you know what? I'm going to build you a house, a kingdom that will go on forever. Forever. Well, how can a kingdom go on forever? We see this in Jesus. Um, The kingdom of David doesn't seem like it lasts forever. You know, you, you have King Saul, King David, King Solomon. That's the only time that you have a united Israel for 120 years. Um, First Kings is about the civil war that takes place, and then the kingdom split. And uh, and if you really want me to bore you to death, I could go through all of the kings, uh, but it's it's pretty boring. There's forty of them, um, in which you have the kingdom when it divides. You have this northern kingdom called Israel, and then you have this southern kingdom called Judah. And uh, the northern kingdom has 20 kings. All of them are wicked. There's not one good king that ever comes through the northern kingdom. And so this is where all the prophets, they're starting to come up here, saying if you don't repent, you'll be destroyed. Well, they're destroyed in 722 B.C. by Assyria. Then you have the southern kingdom, and they also have 20 kings. And eight of them are pretty decent. They're not great, but they're decent. And so God postpones judgment there. And he keeps sending prophet after prophet. Almost every one of your prophets comes during this time of 2 Kings. Almost every one of them. And, and, and the message is, is almost always the same. Hey, if you don't repent, you're going to be destroyed. If you don't repent, you're going to be destroyed. Well, finally, the southern kingdom was destroyed in 586. And the temple was destroyed as well. Um, And so that takes us to the next category, exile. What looks like the promise to Abraham has failed. I mean, when they finally got really numerous, well, then they were, you know, in slavery. When they finally got land, well, then a lot of it was taken away. When they finally got this kingdom, this great nation, well, it lasted for just such a short amount of time. And... In 586, when Jerusalem was destroyed um, by Babylon, the Babylonians didn't just kill all of the Israelites. They did something very clever. They actually took the cream of the crop of Israel. They said, y'all are going with us back to Babylon. And what they wanted to do is to educate them all in the Babylonian ways and then send them back and just completely transform Israel that way. And, uh, and what you have is this deportation of the cream of the crop of Israel. Daniel is exported. You have Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Um, these are where all those stories come from, where, where they live in exile in Babylon. And so now the people of God are really wondering, I mean, for one, is their faith even going to hold on at all? Was this all just a sham? What about these promises to Abraham? And so God sends a prophet, Jeremiah, in one of the, the best texts in all Scripture. Turn to Jeremiah 29. 
And he writes this letter to the exiles. And it's kind of become one of the key verses in the life of this church. Because you have these exiles, they're living in Babylon, they hate it there, it's in the midst of a pagan people, and they're thinking, the promises to Abraham, they're gone. And, and God says this, we read in verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare and you will find your welfare. And here Jeremiah, he's saying, you know what? You can still be a blessing. You can still bless all the families of the earth. My promise to Abraham is not void. When it says, seek the welfare, that word is shalom. Seek the shalom of the city. Seek the rest of it. Um, don't, Don't just give up here. And so you have people like Daniel taking that to heart. You have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego taking that to heart. And then later in Jeremiah 29, he gives those very hopeful words when he says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God has not given up on them. And then you flip over just two chapters to Jeremiah 31. One of the key chapters in the Old Testament. Beginning in verse 31. God makes an extraordinary promise to them. He says, okay, you know what? You've had land and you've lost it. I've made you famous and you've you've blown it. You have never been a blessing. The, The problem is your heart. Your heart is the issue. So I'm going to make a new covenant with you. Different than the covenant of Abraham. I'm going to make a new covenant with you and it's going to change your heart. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so God makes this extraordinary promise, this new covenant that, you know what? I'm going to deal with the sin issue. And we see that with Jesus fulfilling this, you know, the, that last supper, last Passover meal. When he says, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. And what he is saying is Jeremiah 31 fulfilled. Jeremiah 31 is being launched right now. I'm changing hearts. He's changing hearts through the cross because he's dealing with the sin issue. Well, this brings us to the next section, which is the return. After 70 years in exile, they're finally allowed to return and a very, very, very small percentage of the Israelites return. And uh, here we get the books Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And Ezra is really about the rebuilding of the people in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is really about the rebuilding of the, the walls of Jerusalem. Um, and then you also have Ezekiel prophesying during this time as well. And uh, they rebuild the temple, and the people who remember the former temple are weeping because they realize that though God has returned them back to their land, they're nothing compared to who they were. And so they're still thinking, is God's promise to Abraham really going to be fulfilled? And then you have the next section, 400 years of silence. Um, 
in which nothing happens. We don't have any recorded history of it in the Bible. Um, this is when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to power. It was during this time. They started giving their new interpretations of the law and things like that um, until finally we come to Jesus. So that's the Old Testament right there. Um, the kind of unbroken story of the Old Testament. Um, now let's get to the New Testament. And I'm going to try to end in enough time for you all to ask a few questions. Because uh, we're going to fly through the New Testament. You have the first four books. I don't have any slides for this. Your first four books are the Gospels, which is a new genre. There's nothing like the Gospels before they came out. I would call them a biographical sermon. It's not straight-up history. It's not a straight-up biography. And it's not just a sermon. It's a biographical sermon. And by that, I mean each author wrote their gospel trying to make a certain theological point. So they took the true stories of Jesus and they presented just certain ones because you can't write about everything Jesus did. So you just tell these certain ones to make a certain theological point. And so you have the gospel. Matthew wants to show that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king. And so he's going to tell all these stories that show that. And you have Mark that really wants to highlight how Jesus was was the servant. And he's the suffering servant spoken of in Isaiah. Uh, Then you get to Luke. In which Luke really shows, you know, and hopefully you've seen that, that Jesus is the perfect man. He's not like any other man. He's this perfect man who seeks sinners. He's perfect, but he's drawn to the imperfect. And Luke really highlights that. And then you get to John, which uh, he highlights that Jesus is the Son of God. He says that in the most blatant terms possible. Um, All of the Gospels tell about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and that he is the Son of God. All of them point to that. That's central in them. But they each have their own little point of view to give us this different angle. uh, to, to, To... really reinforce a different theological truth. Um, and Jesus, um, he sees himself as the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Like we, we just read on the road to Emmaus, he began with Moses and the prophets. And I mean, you, you can almost just picture it, you know, he would have gone on for hours and hours, but saying, hey, you know that Passover lamb, that, that pointed to me, that was, that was me. You know, the tabernacle, well, that was me. I'm, I've dwelled now in your, in your midst. I'm the presence of God. Um, you would have gone through everything. You know the, the line of David? That's me. I'm the fulfillment of those promises to David. Um, he, he could have just gone through the entire Bible. And, and all of us as believers should be able, from the Old Testament, to preach Jesus. It was the only scriptures that were available to Paul. I mean, when he would go and he'd preach Jesus, he'd explain through the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament. And we're not just saying, oh, he directly fulfills this prophecy. No, the entire Old Testament declares or prepares for Jesus. Um, so you have the Gospels, which are the life of Jesus, and then you get to Acts. And Acts chapter 1 through 12 is where we see really the birth of the New Testament church in which the primary figure there is Peter. Upon this rock I will build my kingdom. Then you have Acts 13 through 28, which is missional. And this is when we see missions explode through the conversion of Paul in Acts 9, but then he is commissioned to be a missionary, and he changes the world. Um, And what now we're seeing is the fulfillment of their becoming a blessing to the nations. Finally, because they've changed, our, Jesus has dealt with the root issue, and now the nations are being blessed. Um, and I can't wait. We're going to have in what three, four weeks the ascension. Um, we're going to celebrate the ascension here. The ascension has everything to do with missions. Um, it really does. Is when Jesus goes up to be with his Father, and then he sends his Spirit, sends his Spirit, and it ignites people. And it fulfills those promises in Joel 2. It fulfills the promises to Abraham about being a blessing to the, to the nations. And you just start seeing that spread um, through the giving of the Spirit. Um, 
And then finally, after missions, we have the letters in which the Apostle Paul, he writes to all the people and to the churches. Um, and, and I say this, and I'm not exaggerating. Um, for me, the, the reason that uh, I'm going to try to give my children the best education they can have um, is because I want them to someday understand the book of Romans. I think it's the pinnacle of what we as believers should strive for. It's a very complicated book. The logic is extremely difficult. The theology is hard to grasp. But what you're getting in Romans is the end of Paul's life, and it's the closest thing he has to a systematized theology of the Christian faith. And it's my goal to to really pour into the education of my children so that someday they might be able to read that and understand it. Um, in which the, the scope of it is just vast. Um, but I would say when it comes to the letters in the New Testament, that the Romans is pretty much the, uh, the mountain that all of us need to climb. And I'll end with Revelation, and then I'll let you ask questions. The last three chapters of Revelation mirror the first three chapters of Genesis. They're bookends. Um, You see rest restored. You have the same themes. Once again, you have that serpent. It says that ancient serpent, but he's judged. Um, Once again, you you see the the tree of life there, but this time the people can take freely of it. Once again, you have God's presence in the people's midst, but this time it's not a garden. It's what they were supposed to be all along, a city. Remember, they were supposed to fill the earth. They were supposed to multiply. And now you have this glorious city in which God is in the middle. And, and once again, you find rest, shalom, peace, restored. You have the new heavens and the new earth, this new creation. Um, and so you see all the themes of Genesis 3, again, in the last three chapters of Revelation, and all of Scripture is pointing towards those last three chapters into which we see uh, Genesis 1-3 through restored and fulfilled.